Brethren, let us continue to worship our God this morning through the reading and the preaching of His Word. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Judges chapter 16. That's page 276. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, we of course are in the midst of our series through this book of Judges, and today we've reached the conclusion of Samson. The last judge, the most prominent judge in this book. And we've got today this famous account of Samson and Delilah before us. This is a a long reading, so bear with me. There's really no easy way to break it up. Um, But each detail of this story is critical. So let us listen carefully to God's word. To God, speak to us directly. Here in our midst. Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through the end of the chapter. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. We will give each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that no one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pen, Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. 
And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazareth to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her, and she brought the money and, and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravenger of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and, all, and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Amen. Would you bow with me briefly in prayer again? Father, Speak, for your servants are listening. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, I think with the possible exception of Job or Joseph, I doubt there's another Old Testament narrative that stirs us so deeply, quite like that of Samson. You know, whether, whether you love him or whether you hate him, it's simply impossible to, to hear this story and walk away unaffected. It has all the elements of what we might call as the classic Greek tragedy. A Greek tragedy, according to Aristotle, is a drama about a, uh, the downfall of a well-meaning person through some fatal error or misjudgment. And this downfall produces suffering and insight on the part of the character while arousing pity and fear on the part of the audience. 
Samson's story is but a Greek tragedy. And, you know, we may quibble a little bit about whether he was well-meaning or not, but can't we admit that he was a man clearly gifted by God? Don't we see how we have to painfully watch his downfall come slowly? He's tragically betrayed by a woman he loves, and, and his unprecedented reign as a judge really is only equaled by his unparalleled humiliation and fall from grace. It's impossible to read this story without great pity and and pathos as, as we sympathize with his brokenness, as we longingly hope that in the end that that maybe he finally saw the light. As I've argued before, we love Samson because we so readily identify with Samson, don't we? We see his passion. We recognize our own passion at times. We see his abuse of God's gifts and we mourn our own wasted years. We see him walk blindly into temptation and we recall how we've done that as well. We see his humiliation and when he gets what he deserves and we we shudder to think about what would happen if God gave us what we truly deserve. But more than all of this, even though we are captivated by the tragedy, even though we are humbled by how much we often are so much like Samson, you know why we love the Samson story? We love this story because we love the gospel. And right here is one of the clearest depictions of the gospel found in all of the Old Testament. Here we see a man with great privilege and blessing. And then we see deception at the hand of a woman, forbidden fruit. Then we see sin and the Lord's abandonment and exile and toil and slavery, blindness. But in the end, we see a desperate cry to God for God to show grace And then we see the final deliverance that comes through the death of the hero. We love Samson because we love the gospel. And this story teaches us just a little bit more. It gives us a slightly different angle upon that great salvation that has been accomplished for us in our ultimate spirit-filled deliverer and judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's four basic scenes to this story, to this chapter this morning. So I've got four points uh, for you today as we consider this gospel according to Samson. The first thing I want you to see is this. Sin not dealt with eventually brings ruin. Sin not dealt with eventually brings ruin. Ruin. And we find this in this opening little scene here in verses 1 through 3 with Samson visiting the prostitute and then pulling up the gates of Gaza. Right away, of course, the chapter starts on a very dark note. Last week at the end of chapter 15, we, we, we kind of had hope for Samson, didn't we? Right? He's desperate. He cries out to the Lord. We think, okay, well, well maybe he, he, he finally has learned his lesson. But, but right away, like... Our hopes are dashed. 
is in verse 1, what do we see again? Samson, once again, getting in trouble with his eyes. He sees a forbidden woman, and he gets tangled up with her yet again. At this point, we're probably like, really, Samson? Again? Is he ever going to learn? This is the third time now. Is he ever going to learn? What's interesting about this episode, though, is that really, we can look at verses 1 through 3, and really we see a kind of a summary, a characterization of his entire reign as a judge. I've made the argument that, you know, Samson walking in the steps of Adam, walking in the steps of Israel, uh, Samson acts like a Philistine. He travels freely in their country. He marries Philistine women. He parties with the Philistines. He gets in trouble with his eyes. This leads uh, the Philistines to lay a trap for him. Uh, then he outwits them and, and destroys them. This is a, a repeated cycle in the life of Samson, just like as we've seen throughout the book of Judges. This repeated cycle of Israel falling into sin, crying out to the Lord, being restored, falling into sin again. Samson is Israel personified. Samson is Israel confined into one person. And with this final and last judge, Israel is to see in Samson that their own cycle of sin and rebellion cannot go on forever. In this, we also see the paradox of Samson's reign, as we considered last week. We have, on one hand, Samson's sin. You know, like Eve gazing at the forbidden fruit, Samson sees a forbidden woman, and he partakes. But on the other hand, we see this amazing salvation. He destroys the gates of Gaza. What's interesting about this is that Samson visiting a prostitute recalls how Joshua and Caleb... Uh, in the conquests, visited a prostitute as well. Rahab, the prostitute, spying out the city of Jericho. Now, of course, there are differences here. Joshua and Caleb, I would argue, went in to hide in her home, not to partake of her services, while Samson obviously is burning with lust, and he doesn't care about defeating God's enemies. But this, this mirror, this recalling of that, is to show us how God mysteriously and sovereignly works salvation and uses sin for good. He uses it for good because Samson, visiting the prostitute, ends up with the Philistines lying a trap for him. They wait for him. He lingers and then what happens? Did you notice that we're never even really told what happened with the men who are lying in wait for him? All we're told is that they're lying in wait, that he laid until midnight, and then he got up and took the doors, the gates of the city out. We're not told what happened to them because really the narrator is telling us that they presented absolutely no challenge to him whatsoever. They're inconsequential. They're powerless to stop him. They lie in wait, and yet Samson cre uh, uh, um, um, accomplishes a great salvation, as it were. His feet, of course, is, is astounding. Uh, city gates in the, those days were about two stories high. They were a formidable barrier. They were the only way in and out of the city. 
Um, and Samson, it says here with this detail, pulled up everything, bars and all. And it says <laughs> he carried them all the way to Hebron, which is the highest point in Palestine, 39 miles away, all uphill. It's a picture of Jericho. An astounding, bordering on the absurd salvation. This isn't just defeating enemies. This is dancing on the grave, right? Gaza was the leading city of the Philistines. And the gates were the very symbol of power and protection. And one man carried them into Israel. Superhuman feet. Undoubtedly, it recalls Genesis twenty-two seventeen, where the Lord told Abraham, I'm going to bless your offspring, and your offspring is going to possess the gates of his enemies. This is that paradox of sin and salvation. God fulfilling prophecy, God accomplishing salvation, even through the sinful actions of a man. But more than this, obviously, it's also a haunting foreshadowing of what's to come. Samson, like Adam, Samson, like Israel, had it all. Power, prestige, he was unstoppable. No man, no city gate could stop him. And yet, his wandering eye is going to bring him to ruin. That's because the root problem is not the enemies of Israel external. The root problem is in Israel is their sin. And their sin is going to bring about their ruin. You know, one of the most dangerous traps that we can fall into is thinking that because things are going well in our life, that God then must be pleased with us. You may be on the mountaintop this morning, figuratively, of course. Things may be going very well for you today. God's blessing the work of your hands. Nothing seems to stand in your way. But if you're harboring unrepentant sin, the frightening reality is that we we reap what we sow. And sin not dealt with will bring about ruin. No matter how astounding your victories on the outside might be. That's what we ought to see right away. He's unstoppable on the outside. He's going to be corrupted from within. The second thing we see, though, is that sin not only makes, uh, is not only wicked, but it makes us stupid. Sin is not only wicked, but it makes us stupid. This episode with the gates of Gaza makes it clear that the Philistines have no hope of ever having peace or victory over Samson unless they seriously change their strategy. And that's what they do with Delilah here in verses 4 through 6. We're introduced to Delilah here in verse 4. We're told that Samson loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek. The Valley of Sorek is close to Timnah. If you'll recall, this is where Samson first got into trouble back in chapter 14. So he's back in his old stomping grounds again. And really, why not? He, he sees himself as invincible. He's got no qualms of traveling freely in enemy, enemy territory, despite the fact that they all want to kill him. 
He's got no fear. And obviously, he's got no morality either because he continues to fall in love with forbidden foreign women. Certainly a frightening thing when when we can sin freely and have no fear of the judgment of God. But Delilah uh, enters the scene here. Her name is fitting. Some people argue that it means flirtatious uh, because of the, uh, its connotations with uh, an Arabic word for flirtatious. But I tend to lean towards the fact that it sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word for night. Samson is, if you'll recall, his name means little son. And so now enter the anti-son, Delilah. Now enter this darkness that's closing in around him. With Delilah, the Philistines off, uh, see an opportunity. They come to her. Five lords of the Philistines offer her each 1,100 pieces of silver. That is a huge, huge sum of money. It would have put her in the top 1%. It's a lifetime of riches. And so we can already see what's going to happen here. The trap is being set. But you know, what, you know what's key to this section? We're going to explore this more in a moment. But what's key to this section is in verse 4, we're told that he loved this woman. He loved her. Delilah is the only woman in Samson's life. Remember, his life revolves around women. His mother and, and three forbidden women. He's the only, she's the only woman in this narrative that's named. All the others remain unnamed. And she's the only woman in this narrative that we're told that he loved. And this is a foreshadowing of his downfall. He loves what God forbids. And this love robs him from his ability to think clearly and see the trap that she is laying. It's his love that keeps him from seeing what is obvious to everybody else. Last week we saw that sin makes us view our deliverance and deliverer as the enemy. Well, this is the flip side of that. Sin also causes us to see the enemy as our lover, as that which we cannot live without, even if it destroys us. That's the twisted, blinding, corrupting nature of sin. So Samson isn't just wicked in his love for forbidden woman, but his sin has made him delusional as well. And that is the frightening reality that we all must be faced with. The power of sin in our lives, unless the grace of God delivers us from it. Thirdly then, what do we see? God's greatest judgment is the removal of His presence. God's greatest judgment is the removal of His presence. This is where we'll spend most of our time, this episode of Samson and Delilah. By the way, we should be reminded of the famous words of Yogi Berra. This is deja vu all over again. Not only with another woman trying to find out a secret, just like with chapter 14, Samson's wife in the riddle, but also with this little game here, this four-part game, four rounds before a winner is finally declared. 
<clears throat> Our first round comes in verses 6 through 9. We know the story. We know kind of the layout here. Delilah is trying to find out the secret of his strength. Samson says, oh, okay, I can be tied up with fresh bowstrings. Why don't you try something fresh? You know, like I grabbed a fresh jawbone in the last chapter. If you use something fresh, maybe there's something magical to that. And so they, uh, Delilah hides Philistines in an inner room, waits for Samson to fall asleep, ties him up. But just like before, the little sun flares up again. The bowstrings are snapped like when flax touches fire. Round one goes to Samson. Then we get a replay. Round two now. This time Samson says, Oh, if you tie me up with brand new ropes, that will do the trick. Of course, if we read the previous chapter, if we remember, Judah already tried that. They tied him up with brand new ropes. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work here either. Round two also goes to Samson. But then with round three, we kind of get a dark premonition of what's to come. Samson says in verse 13, If you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak like any other man. Here Samson is, of course, coming dangerously close to the truth. He's teetering on the edge. He's flirting with danger. We know that the secret of his strength lies in his hair. But what should be most alarming to us is this language of the pen in the loom. It doesn't quite come out in the English like it does in the Hebrew, but what does this sound like? Think of another femme fatale in this book. Another female assassin who lulls a man to sleep and takes a sharp pointed object to his head. Yale and Sisera in chapter 4. Crushing the enemy of God with a tent peg, driving it through the ground. This is the same language that's used with Delilah right here as she thrust a pin into his head of hair. The author is showing us what's about to happen. He's showing us that, oh, this is bad. This is bad. And more than that, he's also showing us that, you know what? The tables have turned. Right? Before, it was God's enemy being crushed by by a servant of the Lord. But now, God's people, personified in Samson, are under divine judgment. And they are about to get slaughtered. Yet, of course, the pen in the loom doesn't quite do the trick either. And so Delilah moves in for the slaughter with this fourth and final round. At this point, we might stop and ask and say, why in the world does he keep playing this game? What's wrong with him? Doesn't he know what she's trying to do to him? Yeah, I I think he knows. I think maybe on one hand, he probably doesn't believe that he will ever lose his strength. Right? Israel presumed upon the Lord, the temple, the temple, the temple, nothing's ever going to happen bad, uh, bad happen to us. We've got the temple. Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3. They presumed that God would always be on their side. Samson just presumes that he was free to live how he wanted, 
that he was independent, that he could do what he wanted with God's gifts. But more specifically, I think, in the, in, in the, the narrative itself, he kept up this game, again, because he loved her. That's the key the narrator wants us to see. Inordinate love we will cling to even if it destroys us. Our sinful desires turn the enemy into our lover, even though they're out for blood. Ultimately, he doesn't care about his strength. He doesn't care about his calling to be devoted to God alone. All he really wants is this woman. That's what he loves. And he's going to give up everything to get her. We see this in this fourth and final round, this idea of love. In verse 15, Delilah says, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? She knows what she's doing. She knows how to win the game. She hits on the root issue. Prove to me that you love me. And what's his response? In verse 17, after he's vexed to death, again, a premonition of the fact that <laughs> he's, he's about to die, we read that he told her all his heart. <clears throat> he told her all his heart. All his heart. All his heart. Does this sound familiar? We read it earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema. The most sacred of Old Testament passages. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Samson loved this woman more than he loved his Lord. All his heart was not given to the Lord. It was given to this woman. And he forgot the Lord as Deuteronomy 6 warns. He betrayed his Lord and turned to spiritual adultery as Deuteronomy 6 warns. And thus the Lord left him as Deuteronomy 6 warns and gave him what he really wanted. Where is your love? Where is your heart? Is who or what we love drawing us away from the Lord, even if it's something legitimate? Who or what has your heart? That's the question that we ought to be faced with here. Where is our heart? If your heart isn't devoted to the Lord, do you think things will end up differently for you than it did with Samson? That's why the New Testament warns us, if we love the world, if we love the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in us. The call to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, is not just something for the Old Testament saints in Israel. It's a call for us as well. 
as the people of God. Well, Samson's true love is exposed, so he spills the beans. And it's interesting, in verse 17, we hear from Samson what we've known all along, but we've never really been sure whether he knows or not. He says that he's a Nazareth from birth, separated and devoted to God, and it's symbolized by the length of his hair. See, we haven't been sure that Samson really knew this because of his sin, repeatedly, again and again and again. But now we see he knows. And you know what this teaches us? He's been running all along. He's been a Jonah, never really wanting to serve the Lord, never really wanting to deliver Israel. He's been fleeing his entire life, and it's about to catch up to him. Rather than fighting the Philistines, he's always wanted to be one of them. He's wanted to marry them, to live in their country, to drink with them. His conflict with the Philistines, if you'll recall, every single time has only come up because the Spirit of the Lord stirred things up between them. And so here, with these words, it becomes clear. Samson doesn't want to be a Nazarite. He wants the freedom to live how he wants to live. He wants to marry whom he wants to marry. He wants to do what he wants to do. He wants to live life on his own terms. But brethren, the gifts and calling of the Lord are irrevocable. Christian life will never make sense. It will never make sense to you unless you realize that you have been saved for His purposes. And that God will not let His children live in sin. He will not let His children go their own way. God will not let you be just like anybody else and live like everybody else, indistinguishable from the enemies of the war of God all around us. God will do anything to wake you up so that you submit to Him, that, so, that, so that you order your life according to His calling. And He does that because He loves you. He's preparing for you a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. He is fitting you for the life to come. Samson's running. He's been running all along, and the Lord is about to reclaim his own, even as painful and tormenting as it's going to be for Samson. With this, Delilah knows that he's for real. She calls the Philistines to set a trap. In verse 19, we read that she made him sleep on her knees. Literally, uh, the text says between her knees. If you'll recall the incident with Yale and Sisera, I do believe this is an unmistakable sexual reference. It's another episode where a man, excuse me, a woman dominates the man, she seduces him, she physically wears him out so that she can do what she wants with him, and Samson is depicted like a brute beast, just a dumb animal, lustful, fit for slaughter. He follows his passions. The woman is in control. She cuts his hair. The, it says he, but really the, uh, the, the text, uh, the feminine verb is she cut his hair. I believe she may have called a man for the razor, but she cut his hair and then she taunts him, literally torments him. Which really just underscores how bad, how bad she hurt him. 
If you've ever been spurned or betrayed by a lover, you know that's some of the worst pain that we can experience in this life. This is heartbreaking. Even though we say, oh, you know, he, he deserves it. He's a fool. He's a dumb animal. We shouldn't wish this even on our worst enemies. It's heartbreaking. But the most terrifying and most frightening and most heartbreaking statement in all of this chapter is found here in verse 20. He awoke, thought he could shake himself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. That should strike terror in your heart. There is nothing more frightening. There's nothing more evil. There's nothing more judgmental than the Lord giving us over to our sin, abandoning us. Because God's greatest judgment is when He removes His presence. Well, believe it or not, that's not the end of the story. The real climax is yet to come. And so forth and lastly, we see finally that God is faithful even when we are not. God is faithful even when we are not. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's hard not to read these words with great pity and sorrow. They capture him. They gouge out his eyes, which is ironic, right? Because how does Samson always get himself in trouble? By seeing. God's taken away his idol. God's taken away that which he lived for. Then they bring him to Gaza, which is more irony. That's the city where he tore up the gates. Now it's his prison. They force him to grind at the mill. This is calculated humiliation. Just mindless Purposeless, endless toil. It recalls how Egypt was a slave, excuse me, Israel was a slave in Egypt. It recalls how Adam was cast out of the garden away from the presence of the Lord, remember, to work in endless pain and toil. This is a replaying of the curse. But we get this hint of hope in verse 22. His hair begins to grow back. It's important to know that his hair isn't magical. It was just an outward, visible sign of his separation unto the Lord. And, you know, we should not separate sign from what is signified. We, you know, acknowledge that in the Lord's Supper. It's not literally the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot separate what is signified there because the presence of the Lord through the Holy Spirit is with us when we partake. But hair growing back shows that God has not fully abandoned His servant, even though it looks like that on the outside, even though you're suffering, even though you're going through hell in this life, even though you're under the judgment of God. God does not abandon His people. So the Philistines, they want to revel in the victory. They they throw a party for the grain god, Dagon. They attribute the victory to him. Which right now we should be saying, uh oh, <laughs> what happens when the Lord's honor is at stake, right? <laughs> and false gods are praised, um, particularly when his servants are involved. But in verse 25, they're drinking heavily and they summon Samson to entertain them. And really, at this point, we get Samson's darkest moment. He's paraded before the Gentile pagans. Verse 26. 
a little boy leading him by the hand, which is just a sideshow of humiliation. This mighty man's got to be led around by a boy. They laugh at him. They mock him. They find him as utter entertainment. This is humiliation and shame to the nth degree. But isn't it amazing how the darkest hour of the night comes just before dawn. For ironically, it's in Samson's darkest moment that he finally sees the light. Ironically, it's in his physical blindness that he finally gets a glimpse of the spiritual truth. We might have said last week at the end of chapter 15, oh, God's broken Samson now, right? And he cries out to the Lord. But do we ever learn that easily? Let's be honest with ourselves. We're too sinful for that. How nice it would be to to go through one period of suffering and say, all right, I'm good. Thank you, Lord. That's behind me. Right? Bright and sunny before me now. I'm going to live happily ever after. No, we're we're too sinful for that. God, uh, God... continually has to break us. Often life is one life uh, long process of God continually pushing us back into His arms because of His great love for us. But here, Samson is entirely broken. What does he do? He calls upon his covenant Lord, Yahweh. And he pleads here, Remember me, Lord, just this once. What do those words communicate? Yes, Lord, I forgot you. I betrayed you. I don't deserve anything. But just this once. This is the language of a man who knows he has no right to expect anything from the Lord. This is the language of the beggar. This is the language of the publican beating his chest, saying, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. He doesn't pray for his freedom. He doesn't pray that the Lord restores him. He prays simply that the Lord come back. Don't abandon me. I am your servant, and you are the one true and living God. Now manifest your glory in this dark place. So with the hair growing back, with the visible servant of the Lord being mocked and derided in the praise of this false god, Dagon, with the eyes of the world saying, you know what? On the outside, Dagon's won this battle. He's triumphed over Yahweh. With all of this, God hears his prayer. We see, of course, that this was a multi-level building supported by two pillars. It was a common structure in those days. It's interesting that most historians say that this typical kind of structure uh, really could only hold about 700 people on the roof. So without a doubt, uh, there's people on both levels here, without a doubt, it is extremely, extremely, extremely overcrowded. But the Lord hears his prayer. He bows with all his strength. The house falls. All of the important Philistine leaders are killed Samson dies with them. The one who lived like a Philistine dies like a Philistine. It's the unfortunate reality of idol worship. You become what you worship. As J.C. Ryle said, 
men normally die just as they lived. But the beauty of this passage is that where God, excuse me, where man is unfaithful, God is faithful. And this is where we can find great hope. Even in sinfulness, even when we're under the judgment of God, even when we believe and sense that God has abandoned us, even when we think we finally send our way out of His good favor, even when we reap what we sow, even when we are in the midst, the belly of Dagon's temple, we can cry to the Lord. And He hears. And He answers in the day of trouble. And that's what it means to have faith. Not to appeal to God based upon what we've done or haven't done. Because our natural tendency is we know what we've done. We know we're sinners. We know we don't deserve grace. And we shrink back. But doing that, shrinking back, even when under the guise of I don't deserve this, is a mark of unbelief. Faith appeals to God not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who He is. As loving, as merciful, as forgiving. This is how the story proclaims the gospel to us. We see His privilege and blessing like Adam who had it all. We see His sin bring about fall uh, with the toil and shame and humiliation and curse. But we also see that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And even with all His sin and flaws, we ought to love Samson and his story because Samson points us to Jesus Christ. Like Samson, Jesus too was God's chosen, spirit-filled deliverer. He too was betrayed by a close companion with a kiss for a sum of silver. He too was bound and blindfolded and hit and mocked and humiliated and paraded before the Gentiles to be scorned and laughed at. He too, when he was about to die, prayed to the God who had forsaken him. He too was cut off from his father in death. He too died with arms outstretched. He too said, Lord, Father, let me die with them as he was numbered with the transgressors. And he too destroyed more enemies in his death than he ever did in his life. The greatest victory of all was in his death. For with his death, he undid the power of the kingdom of darkness. And he put an end to all of our sins. And he ushers us into his presence through his blood and righteousness. Yes, Delilah may have bruised Samson's head by cutting his hair. But in the end, he crushed their skull. And in the same way, Christ on the cross was bruised by the serpent. But he crushed Satan's head in the end. And like the gates of Gaza could never stand against Samson, the very gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his church. The story of Samson is the story of us. It's a story of our failures, of our sin, of our temptations, of our inordinate love. 
But it's not like we just need this warning and now if we don't repent, we'll end up just like Him. It points us to our Savior. The one who faithfully loved the Lord his God with all his heart in our place so that he, from the outside, may save us from ourselves. That's the message of Samson. And thus, with this story, let us take heed to the words of John Owen. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. That's what we see with Samson. May God give us the grace to hear and believe these things today. Amen? Let's pray.